0: Well, good morning, I want to apologize for my voice. I turned 50 and the wheels fell off. (laughs) I think Annabelle brought home the stomach virus from college and then it turned into influenza A for me. And so I finished a whole course of Tamiflu and then it turned into asthmatic bronchitis. So I'm feeling a lot better I'm not contagious, and it's good to be out in the world again. So thank you for your prayers, and if you can bear with me this morning, uh, God's Word and His Spirit are not hindered
1: by our weakness,
0: and uh, it's good to be with you again this morning. Uh, I will be out of town next week, that's why I wanted to at least crawl in here this morning and worship with you again, and then... I shouldn't be out of town or missing uh, through the remainder of January, February. Okay. So I'm going to ask you to open your scriptures. By the way, water does not really help because it's bronchial. But this is so you feel better. Okay. <laughs> like, just take a sip of water. <clears throat> Actually, 1 Timothy chapter 2 I want to ask a question. This is the first sermon I'm preaching in a new year. What is your life centered on? Only one thing can be the center of center, right? Only one thing can be most important. I can tell you what should define your life, what should define my life, Paul said it this way, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day
1: in accordance
0: with the Scriptures. What Paul calls that section, he calls it the Gospel Let me ask you, will the gospel shape your life this year? Now that sounds confusing to people that have only ever understood the gospel as sort of a set of facts or as a single decision to make sure I'm going to heaven. How does the gospel in that way shape a life? But this is what Paul said. This This is Paul's affirmation because the gospel is about relationship. Have you ever been somebody with somebody and when you're done spending time with them, you just sense like you were in the presence of Christ? It doesn't happen often. But people who allow the gospel to shape their life, their affections, their words, their humility, you have that sense of being in the presence of Jesus when you're with them. Paul said this, Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It's a beautiful statement. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, right, failures, successes, achievements, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. A lot of churches preach the gospel, but few churches actually are shaped by the gospel Monday through Saturday. D.A. Carson warned, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. Whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. So let's ask God this year, the prayer of Galatians 6, 14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've asked you to open up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 3, the latter part. We're going to go right to two titles. God, our Savior. Look at verse 4. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So here's what we're going to do this morning we're going to make a bold and beautiful statement through sermon and symbol that there is one God. That makes it really simple. And there is one mediator. There is no, as the Church of Rome says, a co-mediatrix, which is Mary. That is false teaching. That is not the gospel. Because the scriptures say there is one mediator. And that one true mediator is the man, Christ Jesus. He had to become human. And he gave himself as a ransom for all. So here's, here's where we're going. We're going to look at the good news and two implications of that good news. And then we will enjoy a symbolic meal together, rejoicing in those truths. Under the good news, here's the first point.
1: And I want you to get
0: this. People's lostness is not God's desire. Some of you need to hear that a hundred times because somehow in your minds you've taken the beautiful doctrine of election which the Scripture teaches and you have charged God with injustice and unfairness. When the Scriptures that you hold, God tells you He desires all to be saved. It is an exclusive message, but it is an inclusive message to God desires people's salvation. And if you miss that, what you will do is you will take a biblical doctrine and wrongly apply it, and you will create anger and fear and hopelessness in your own heart and in anybody who rubs up against you. For the gospel to shape your life, you have to understand this about God. Your lostness is not his desire, but your lostness is on you. God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We recently came through a season of gift-giving. Have you ever bought somebody a gift they weren't expecting, and you knew that they would love? Have you ever done that? We love doing that with our children growing up, and just... and What are you watching? You're not watching. I mean, unless you're OCD, how they're unwrapping the gift. Right? Ooh, you should have. Mm, right? No. You're watching their face, and you're waiting for them to actually, right, process what the gift is. And you have such great delight in giving them something that is awesome. You ever had that experience? That just happened in our house again this past Christmas season. Have you ever thought about God and his gift of salvation that way? He's providing you a gift. He stands there with incredible love, waiting for you to open it. Desiring for you to receive it. God is the great gift giver who gives from a heart of love. But what if that person got to the point and they looked at it? You knew what was inside. And you gave it out of love. And it cost a lot. And they just, no thank you. You know what God desires for all people? Is that you receive the gift of grace. He is one God who loved the world so that He, what? Gave His Son and the Son willingly laid down His life for you. People's lostness is not God's desire. Do you know that God is not obstructing your way to come to Him? He did everything He could to initiate it and provide a way. He's clearing the way. He says, come. Come. But even though God desires your salvation, He will not save you irrespective of your own stance towards Christ. This is the mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He has done everything to clear out the way, to invite you to come. He even desires it but he will let you say no. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter 3 verse 9. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. People's lostness is not God's desire. Your daughter's lostness is not God's desire. Your wife's lostness is not his desire. Your son's lostness is not God's desire. Secondly, there is one God and one mediator. Here's here's the beautiful simplicity of this. There aren't many gods and many ways and a myriad of sacrifices and a confusing maze to try to be right with God. There's one true God who's revealed himself clearly and even sent his son to make the one way possible to come back to him. One God, one mediator. The beautiful thing about this one mediator is he was successful in his work. Christ, as mediator, stepped between God and sinful humanity to make possible a new relationship which the Scripture calls the New Covenant. Jesus said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, it is exclusive. But we have one mediator who made it possible. John Bunyan, in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, It is the only book that Charles Spurgeon read every single year next to the Bible. At one point in the story, Christian finds himself uh, meeting two men, Formalist and Hypocrisy. They insist that like Christian, they're on their way to the Celestial City. But when Christian first finds them, they're jumping over the wall and they're getting on the narrow path. So Christian recognizes the danger and he knows that the only legitimate way to the celestial city is through the wicked gate, which is symbolic of the one narrow way of Jesus Christ. So Christian asks, formalist and hypocrisy, why came you not in at the gate? The men quickly explain that people of their country think the gate is... Way too far. So they have made it their practice to make a shortcut of it. Besides, they argue, if we make it onto the path, what's it matter which way we got in? If we are in, we are in. You are on the path and you came in at the gate. We are on the path and we climbed over the wall. So how are you any better off than we are? Christian warns the men that the Lord of the city gave specific decrees that you can only enter one way. And when you come through that way, the Lord of the city has given you a scroll of which formalist and hypocrisy have none. I imagine, says Christian, that you lack this scroll because you didn't come in at the gate. So what will happen with formalist and hypocrisy when they show up at the celestial city without a scroll confirming that they came through the narrow wicket gate, they will be rejected. That's why what we preach is an exclusive message, because that's what Scripture teaches. The final phrase in chapter 2, verse 5, the man Christ Jesus identifies his mediating work in his earthly ministry. We talked about this before Christmas. Christ had to become human so that he could die. His mediating work was the cross work. Since God cannot in his nature die, Jesus became a servant and he took on human flesh so that he could die the death of a cross, so that he could mediate and bring us back together with God. The purpose of Bethlehem has always been Golgotha. The manger was always divinely designed to lead to the cross. Third note, this Christ's death was a ransom. Look at 1 Timothy 2 verse 6. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. Notice first, Jesus' sacrifice was voluntary. He gave himself. This wasn't a tragedy. This wasn't an accident. He even said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down for the sake of the sheep. The Son willingly gave himself, just as God the Father willingly gave the Son. So if you look at it this way, the love and willingness of the Father and the love and the willingness of the Son equals the amazing gift of God's grace to you to be reconciled. The Christ sacrifice is a payment too that obtains the release of our bondage. See, there is a ransom to be paid, but our message is not one of doom and gloom. It's one of good news, of an open and free way of a God who desires all people to be saved. That's the gospel according to Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I want you to notice now two implications. Go back to verse 1, First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. And this is going to seem odd and out of place. But Paul says this. So for that gospel, now to shape our life, what does that mean? What, does that, what are the implications? First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. You know one of the implications of the gospel is? That we pray as a church. That we pray together. Now, if you were asked to cast a vision, for Highlands, for 2019, what would you cast? Better facilities? A more refined liturgy? A more energetic music program? You know, none of those things are found in the New Testament. So it always helps me when I'm thinking about what is God's vision For this church in 2019, I would ask, what is God's vision for a small house church in the Himalayas of Nepal? Are they thinking big facilities? Are they thinking entertainment package? No, you know what they're doing? They're praying. And they're making disciples. The request specifically focuses on those in leadership. Our participation in the Great Commission is linked to our praying. Paul instructs the church to pray for the responsible administration of rulership. You notice what he doesn't pray. He doesn't pray that God would crush Roman rule. He prays for the right rulership of the Romans who are occupying this territory. We are to pray for the very officials whose decisions can affect the environment in which the gospel is to be proclaimed. That's what a gospel-shaped church looks like in 2019. The importance that Paul attaches to prayer, to our conduct in the house of God, suggests the need to place it as a priority in all of our gatherings. So by way of did we accomplish God's vision in 2018, let me ask you, did you pray with this church? Did you pray in your life on life? Did you pray in your small group meetings? Did you pray for the salvation of all people? Because what's, what's next? It's God's desire that all be saved. See, the purpose of this letter is found in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, And one of those ways is this. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. So what does that mean? That means that we should be praying for our president, our vice president, our Senate, our House, our Colorado governor, our Colorado officials, and we should be interceding for them before we critique their party affiliation. And yes, there's a place to be salt and light and to speak truth and to affect change, but we have no basis to be critical, folks, unless we are already obeying this command. Our commitment as elders is to create more room and opportunity for prayer, intercession and thanksgiving during our services, but this can't just be elder-led. It has to be when we gather, yes, but also when we scatter. The second implication of gospel truth is this. Look at verse 7. The Apostle Paul says this, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Of all the things that we could cast as a vision, here are two, pray together and make disciples. How would you clearly define a process for a church that moves a person From salvation to spiritual maturity to effective ministry. Well, prayer, gathering, and making disciples. Paul says his mission here for the church gathered is proclamation and teaching. So let me ask one question underneath this this sort of second implication. Look back over 2018 and ask yourself this. Where are the disciples Jesus asked me to make? Where are your disciples? That Because of your life, your values, your sacrifice, they are now Jesus' followers. Because all the other changes that we could affect, all the other vision that could be cast, is nothing if we are disobeying the Great Commission. Jeff Vanderstelt wrote this, All of life is discipleship. Learning to follow, trust, and obey Jesus in the everyday stuff of life requires submitting to and obeying God's Word in three key environments. First, life on life, where our lives are visible and accessible to one another. Second, in community, where more than one person is developing another. And third, life on mission, where we're experiencing making disciples and while doing so come to realize how much we need God's power. Some of you have committed to making disciples in community, centrally, here. You teach our children or have taught our children. You labor among our teens. You teach our adults. And I want to say, press on, and don't become weary in well-doing. Some of you have committed to making disciples life on life, decentralized, around your dining room table, at a coffee shop, one-on-one, reading a book. And I want to say to you, press on. Don't become weary in well-doing. Some of you have committed to life on mission. You're affected at networking with people in your neighborhood. And at your workplace. And I want to say to you, press on. Don't become weary in well doing. But some of you are not doing any of these. The two greatest commandments Jesus said are this love God and love others. And attached to that is the Great Commission, where he says, What? While you're going, while you're living, While you're drinking coffee and tea, while you're playing, while you're working, make disciples. Where are the disciples Jesus asked you to make? See, that's what the gospel does. It causes us to pray and look to him in dependence and pray for the salvation of all people. And it causes us to be on mission. So here's how I'd like to transition this morning. Three questions, and then we'll transition to the Lord's Supper. First, have you, came, have you come to Jesus through the narrow way? Because here's my concern. Jesus taught this. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide wide. For the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow. And the road is difficult. And only a few ever find it. And in that same chapter, Matthew chapter 7, he says this. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we not prophesied in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name done many wonderful works, and I will say to you, I never knew you. The gospel is not just a set of facts or a decision. It is a life shaped by following and learning from Jesus. Have you repented and believed in Jesus Christ alone? Secondly, will you commit to pray for our country's and state's leaders this year for their salvation? Yes, we pray for one another's families and children and spouses and friends. But will you commit to obey 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, to pray for them before criticizing, to pray continually and faithfully? And third, will you commit to make disciples? Life on life, in community, and on mission. Let's pray.